welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to three more techniques for helping your clients sleep. Regular deep sleep is necessary for a healthy life, of course. So here are some more tips for treating insomnia. And sometimes life feels like a charging beast breathing down your back, hunting you down with its deadlines and responsibilities. And of course, electronic pokes, tweets and pings jolt your overloaded brain. You know, so you might be thinking, I've got to check this. Uh, No, I have to get back to that. But I promised him that and I'm supposed to meet her there. And I'm sure there's something else I'm forgetting. Okay. And your brain spouts out dopamine like there's no tomorrow, is it? as its motivational pathways react and respond to each new expectation and demand. And this is the world we're living in. Even your laptop seems to be against you and demanding of you as the nine windows you're juggling stare you down. But while your laptop draws greedily from a limitless supply of electricity, you don't. You know, you have to operate on mere flesh and blood. Your trillions of cells fight to continue the intricate, infinitely complex dance that makes you who you are. But they're starving, they're thirsty, they're not getting what they need, the pure balm that is regular, deep healing sleep. Sleep is nature's medicine, a comforting friend, a guide and an energizer. And like a good lover, it makes us feel alive and we miss it when it's gone. So sleep is not an option, it's a necessity. Sleep is vital and without it, we eventually get sick. It's a pretty bold statement, but it's an accurate one. So I can't overemphasize the importance of good sleep in keeping us alive, healthy, and sane. As far as treating clients goes, understanding the state of play of their current sleep pattern is central to understanding them. Sleep, or lack thereof, plays a role in depression, anxiety, and addictions. Now, we can all miss sleep sometimes. You know, maybe we have a busy schedule. Maybe we've developed bad habits like overstimulating the retinas with late night uh, web surfing, for example. And maybe we're drinking too much. Too much alcohol before bed can get you off to sleep, but can rip through your sleep like thunder, you know, later on uh, when it wakes you up. Or worst of all, maybe we're lying awake sick with worry. Okay. And worry is a stimulant like caffeine. Once these lifestyle factors are corrected, sleep will often fall into line. You know, when it comes to improving your client's sleep, start by improving their state of mind. When you lift post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, or whatever other mental health issue your client might be battling, you also lift the chronic cortisol-inducing worry that goes with it. And it's amazing how quickly sleep can uh, repattern itself into healthy ways. So if we're serious about helping our clients sleep better, then we need to familiarize ourselves with the basics first. And by this, I mean asking clients about their sleep and uh, helping them with their wind down routines, ensuring their sleep hygiene is healthy and their sleep environment is optimal to, uh, to allow sleep in, as it were, and addressing that most potent of stimulants worry. So sleeplessness can be caused by all kinds of conditions and life complications. And trying to treat it without looking at all of that, at what lies behind it, is an uphill battle to say the least. But it's a two-way street. By treating our clients' insomnia directly, we can also help improve 
other conditions in their life. But before we can do that, we need to work out what's going wrong with their sleep patterns in the first place. And of course, that's easier said than done. So how much sleep did you get last night? And that's a notoriously difficult question. It's impossible to tell exactly what time we went to sleep. You know, people often say, well, I went to sleep at 10 p.m. And I'm kind of wondering whether they were staring at their watch. At one of my hypnosis workshops, I met a sleep lab technician who told me that in his experience, most people actually sleep longer than they think they have. And that's not to say that you shouldn't believe someone when they tell you that they barely slept a wink last night. But I also bear in mind that it's really hard for your client to objectively tell how much sleep they've had. Fascinatingly, there's also a placebo element. It's not, it's not only a matter of how much sleep you've had, but also how much sleep you think you've had. A study revealed that people who believed they'd had more sleep performed better at cognitive tests than those who believed they'd had less sleep, regardless of how much sleep they'd actually had. But you probably don't have an EEG machine or sleep lab handy, so we need to ask questions about sleep. If we suspect it's a real problem for someone, questions like, does it feel like it takes a long time each night to fall asleep, more than 30 minutes, is a useful question. Uh, Another one might be, do you wake up multiple times through the night? Do you find yourself waking up really early in the morning and feeling you can't get back to sleep? And we know that early waking syndrome is a symptom of depression, perhaps because the body is trying to self-correct the excessive REM or dream sleep characteristic of depression. Another question might be, do you wake up exhausted each morning, even though you've slept through the night? And this might indicate their sleep composition is out of whack. Too much REM sleep, too little recuperative slow wave sleep is a major cause and symptom of depression as well. So I've written about the importance of kick-starting the REM state as a way of getting off to sleep. And while we don't fully enter the dream state as soon as we go to sleep, we do have dream fragments as we go through the gateways to sleep. But that's only the beginning. So let me share with you three more techniques to help your clients sleep. Technique number one, turn the paradox on its head. So if you If your aim is to get to sleep, trying to stay awake is actually more effective than trying to sleep. Okay, you probably discovered this, you know, when you're really tired, trying to stay awake feels impossible. Trying to go to sleep also feels impossible if you're you're awake. Um, Paradoxical tasking can help change patterns of behavior and response. So I was thrilled with how well it worked for one of my clients in particular. This client, we'll call him Tom, just couldn't sleep. For hours, he told me he'd wrestle with his thoughts and his duvet. And he said, as much as I try to sleep, I just can't. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that his valiant efforts were probably the reason he couldn't get to sleep. Okay, trying too hard gets in the way. Sleep needs to be invited in, not kidnapped and forced to comply. It's a guest, not a slave. When I asked Tom what he thought about during those fitful awake hours... He was quick to answer. Tom was self-employed and he'd lie awake, plagued by all the work he needed to do and work he hadn't done and, and bookkeeping and so on. So I saw an opening. So Tom was the kind of guy who does what he says he'll do. So I had I set him a task. I told him that while we were still learning about his particular insomnia, it would be useful to harness those bonus hours, a phrase Milton Erickson sometimes used with his 
sleepless clients. So what was Tom to do in this task that I set him? And I said, whatever you do, don't try to go to sleep. Tom was to lie in bed for around an hour. And if he hadn't gone to sleep during that time, he was to get up, go into a dimly lit part of his apartment and catch up on work for 30 minutes. And it was quite monotonous work, filing accounts. After 30 minutes, he was to go back to bed. And if he, if he was still awake an hour later, he was to again get up, go into that dimly lit place and do 30 minutes more work since he was awake anyway. So there were bonus hours. In the first week, he found that he caught up on a great deal of work, but that he started feeling reluctant to get up and work after the third session. It's funny, he told me, I kind of want to stay awake because I get work done. But if I fall asleep, that's good as well. And I'm feeling a lot sleepier anyway. By the second week, he found he had stopped worrying about whether he'd go to sleep or not at all. And what do you know, more often than not, he was falling asleep before he even got to the second work session. By the third week, he was drifting off before any of the boring work got done. By that time, it also caught up on his work arrears, so he was worrying less about it anyway. So actually doing tedious work doesn't tend to be as stimulating as worrying about doing it. I'd given Tom a therapeutic double bind. Either he got work done or he slept, a bind that in his case worked really well. When Tom started failing at getting up to work, he started succeeding at getting more sleep. And part of the success of this technique stems from the fact that ultimately we're never going to feel terribly motivated to get up and do tedious work. We have rebellion mechanism within us. And so our unconscious builds the motivation to just drift off to sleep as a way of getting out of the boring work. So we have to consider motivation in all therapy. How we can harness it often in the first step to sleeping is to make it okay not to sleep. Technique number two, three sights, three sounds, three feelings. I'd also set Tom a task to do while he was in bed between work sessions. I taught him the self-hypnotic technique of the three things induction. I suggested he could relax deeply, not to get to sleep, but to just get some of the benefits of slow wave sleep while he was awake. So I sort of reframed it a bit. And there was something important Tom needed to learn about sleep. Sleep is an activity. Sleep isn't passive. The brain can be highly active during sleep, especially during the initial, initial stages. So I reassured Tom that he didn't need to switch off to go to sleep. His brain simply had to become active in a different way. So many people say, oh, I can't switch off, you know, as if they're a machine. As we drift into sleep, we have dream fragments, flashes in which our creative imagination uh, takes over from our conscious mind and sort of runs itself or seems to. Okay. Now, normally this happens unconsciously, but it doesn't have to. We can um, invite this process if we consciously start to prompt these imaginative flashes, we can kickstart the process and set the scene for sleep. We're sort of encouraging dream fragments. Visualization mirrors the brain's natural process of entering the mythic doorway to slumberland. So I taught Tom to focus without moving his head and with his eyes open to start with on three things he could see. He was to inwardly list to himself such statements as, number one, I can see the outline of the wardrobe, Number two, I can make out the bookshelf. Number three, I can see shadows around the door or whatever it was. 
if the room's too dark and darkness is very good for sleep, then have your client go straight to imagining what they might see if the light was on. Okay. Next, I had Tom direct his attention to what he could hear. Number one, I can hear the sound of my own breathing. Uh, number two, I can hear a train going past in the distance. Uh, number three, I can hear the gentle patter of rain on the glass of the window or, or whatever is in the environment. Then he was to direct his focus to what he could feel. So, you know, number one, I can feel the duvet on my skin. Uh, number two, I can feel the air on my skin. Uh, number three, I can feel the pillow on the back of my head. Okay. Or, or whatever. The sensation of breathing in the chest, you know, it could be anything. And once he'd gone through this once, real things, he could see, hear and feel. He was to close his eyes and experience three things he could imagine seeing. Like a kitten curled up asleep or a blue circle or a sunset merging with a sea's horizon or whatever came to mind. Then Tom was to fleetingly focus on three things he could imagine hearing. The sound of a bath running, birdsong in the trees, the sound of the sea on a summer's night or whatever. And finally, he would come up with three things he could imagine feeling kinesthetically. Swimming in a pool of water, okay, the, the, the reality of that. Having a wonderful massage, walking in the garden with the sensations of the soles of his feet over springy ground, you know, it was completely up to him what he imagined. And because this exercise reflects what happens when we start to drift into sleep, it naturally brings us closer to true sleep. But I'd framed it as something he could do whilst not trying to go to sleep. I wasn't about to tell him that. I, I, by telling him it was a relaxation exercise, not a sleeping aid, made sure that the pressure was off. And this last technique may be a little out there, but you might be surprised how effective it can be. So technique number three, keep your socks on. Okay, so wearing socks in bed may not be the pinnacle of erotic allure, but if you have your sleepy eye on recuperation rather than procreation, they might just be the tonic. So for sleep to come, and stay, our core body temperature needs to drop in comparison to our extremities. So sleeping in a really hot room can be hard because our core body temperature may even rise. It doesn't cool in relation to our extremities. But having cold feet and hands so that the temperature of our, of our extremities is colder than our core body temperature uh, can be just as detrimental to sleep. But if you're a player or a sexual free spirit, if you're, if you consider a night without sex to be a night wasted, fear not. You don't have to go to bed each night in mittens and, and hiking socks. You really don't, and neither do your clients. So I found as long as the bed is not too cool or hot, getting clients to visualize their hands and feet becoming warmer has an amazing soporific effect. So you don't really need the socks. Of course, this may simply be thanks to the sleep encouraging effects of visualization, you know, mirroring the REM dream state, but it might be at least partly an independent effect. What we do know for sure is that body temperature is important when it comes to sleep. So you, you could ask your client to imagine shivering in a cold, snowy place and then finding comfort around a warm, open fire. They could imagine warming their hands and feet around that fire. You could describe the way the air around their hands begins to heat up the hands themselves. Or you could ask them to visualize heat taking a physical form, such as streams of orange or yellow flowing into the hands and feet, warming them up a little as they become sleepier. And this is likely to be even more effective if you combine this with an explanation of how the body's core and extremity temperatures relate to sleep onset.
So sleep is your lifelong companion through your childhood, adolescence and adulthood. And it was a constant friend and it always will be if we let it. It has great and generous gifts of health and well-being to offer us, but we in turn need to protect it. So for some of us, it can feel tempting to shun sleep, to try to maximise our waking time, to manage all of our challenges life throws at us. But if we learn to allow sleep to ride gently alongside us through the twisting path of existence, we might just find that the path is easier to navigate. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. And if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Thank you.